Well, I'd like to welcome you back to the house of the Lord again on this Sunday evening service. It's glad you're able to join with us. We'll open the service by singing the hymn 592, the hymn 592, and we'll all stand as we sing. I'll just get that. 592, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. We have come tonight in the service to fight, as it were, against the devil. So this is a fitting song to open up the service. Number 592.
Well, you might not want to close the hymnal because all our songs that we will be singing tonight are around that area. We are uh, mainly singing on the theme of Christian warfare. Uh, Come up to Reformation Sunday, or is that this Sunday, today? Oh, okay. Well, the evening sermon will be about Luther, so it's very fitting. Um, To our call to worship today, will be taken from Exodus chapter 15. So if you could all turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 15, and that's where we'll be reading from. This is right on the heels of uh, Moses and all Israel passing through the sea, and God has swallowed up the armies of Pharaoh And they get over to the other side, and they sing a song unto the Lord. So we'll be reading from Exodus 15, and we'll read down to uh, verse 13. Thus saith the word of God. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency hast thou overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright as a heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow thy wind, the sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. At this time we're just going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the services here. If you could please bow your heads with me. O God, our Heavenly Father, we are gathered here today to praise thy name, to give thee all the honor and glory, for it is thine, O Lord, and thou dost rightly deserve it. O Lord, we come unto thee now, and we thank thee. We thank thee for Christ, for the blood that was shed upon Calvary, for the wounded side that we can look unto. O Lord, we come unto thee on this basis, 
For we know, O Lord, that when thou dost look upon thy people, thou dost see Christ, and thou dost accept us. O Lord, we pray that thou wouldst bless the services here now, even with this means of recorded message. O Lord, wouldst thou descend upon thy house here now with thy Holy Spirit, and fill us, we do ask and pray. Speak unto us as thou didst with Moses face to face, O Lord. And we ask and pray that the, the net may even be cast on the right-hand side of the boat, that it would be filled with fishes, O Lord, and that the increase would be much. O Lord, bless our time here now. To thy honor, to thy glory, we do ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our next hymn will be the hymn 583, number 583. We face a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Hymn number 583, and we'll sing, and we'll stand and sing.
Well, we do bid you a very warm welcome to those who are, again, uh, meeting for the second time today and those who are joining us for the first time today, and to those who are on the webcast, we bid you a very warm welcome to the Calgary Free Presbyterian Church. Uh, my name is Isaiah Strzok. I am leading the service. Shortly, we will play a video on the screen behind me of a pre-recorded message. As uh, many of you may know, that we do not have a uh, permanent minister at the moment. So please do continue to pray for a minister, for the Lord to burden a man uh, to come here and to be called unto the pulpit. Uh, next week, we will be having the Reverend Derek Bowman, who is the... Uh, associate minister in Winston-Salem, and he will be staying for two Sundays to minister unto us, and then to finish off November, I do believe we have the Reverend Andrew Simpson from Prince George. So do remember those men as they come here and pray that they would be a blessing unto us. The uh, services next Sunday will be at regular times, 11 a.m. for the morning services and 6 p.m. for the evening services preceded by a half hour of prayer at 5.30. The prayer meeting will be on Tuesday at 7 p.m. and that will be held by uh, Skype with the Reverend Andrew Simpson from Prince George and we would delight to have your company in that prayer meeting there. It always helps when there are many people to share the burden of prayer. And it encourage, encourages each and every person there to pray alongside their brothers and sisters. I do believe that's all for the announcements today, um, or tonight, I should say. Our last hymn before the sermon will be number 588. Hymn 588, A Mighty Fortress is our God. We'll be hearing about Luther in a minute, so we'll sing one of his hymns. Number 588, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and we'll stand as we sing this final hymn.
In 1510, after a journey by foot that took five months, Martin Luther saw Rome. It would be his only trip outside of the German lands in his life. The 27-year-old Augustinian monk and a brother monk from the cloister at Erfurt bore special commissions from the head of their order that required the attention of the Pope. Their business would take a month to complete, and while they were there, they did see Pope Julius II complete in body armor, riding on a horse through the streets of Rome. And in that one sighting of him, they understood why it was that he was called the warrior pope. The thought of Luther's superiors was that the journey to Rome, to which they assigned him, would distract him from all his personal problems. And so, like so many pilgrims before him, he made his journey. And like so many pilgrims before him, he probably exclaimed when the spires of the eternal city came into view, Hail, Holy Rome! However, the reputation of Rome far exceeded the city's actual appearance and life. There were, of course, in the city the remnants of Rome's imperial past. And for those ruins, Luther had very little interest. He didn't care to see them. Because like other pilgrims making their journey to Rome, he wanted to see and venerate as many of the holy relics as possible. The church of St. Callistus alone contained the bodies of 40 popes and the remains of 76,000 martyrs from imperial times. Now, if you want to know how they knew there were that many, I couldn't answer that question. In addition, there was, uh, to describe just a few other of the relics, a piece of Moses' burning bush, the chains that supposedly bound Paul, and a coin that Judas received for betraying the Lord Jesus by visiting the two churches of St. John the Lateran and St. Peter's, 
pilgrims could achieve more indulgences than they could if they took a trip to the Holy Land. Now, located in front of St. John the Lateran were, as the church testified, the very 28 stairs that at one time stood outside the palace of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. Now, how such an imposing architectural object could have been moved from Jerusalem to Rome and fitted into just that space, no one ever ventured to say. But the pilgrims knew that anyone who climbed those stairs, the Scala Sancta, on his or her knees, saying a paternoster on each one, could release a soul from purgatory. The bodies of Peter and Paul supposedly were distributed among several churches in Rome. When Luther began traveling around the city, he became dismayed almost immediately because Rome was far from holy. He witnessed the scandalous lives of the priests who made no secret of their visits to houses of ill repute. The indifference of the priests astonished him. They could say seven masses in the time it took Luther to say one. In fact, some of them would say, come on, get a move on, hurry up. Some of the priests made a mockery of the doctrine of transubstantiation by saying of the elements of the Eucharist, bread thou art, and bread thou shalt remain, wine thou art, and wine thou shalt remain. But for Martin Luther, the critical moment proved to be his own climb of the Scala Sancta. He repeated the paternoster on each step, climbing on his knees, and kissing each step for good measure, hoped to release his grandfather from purgatory. In fact, he said he wished that his own parents were already in purgatory so that he could release them as well. But when he reached the top of the stairs, He rose and looked down the steps up which he had climbed and said, Who knows if it is so? And in that doubtful frame of mind, Luther returned back across the miles he had traveled to Erfurt. The deliverance he hoped to gain by his journey turned into still greater misery. But just a little more than seven years later, Martin Luther, just over a week before his 34th birthday, took an action that sparked a movement of sweeping spiritual power and that shattered the myth of medieval Romanism. That scene on the eve of All Saints' Day in 1517, that was 500 years ago this last Tuesday, 
became a favorite theme for portrayers of the Protestant Reformation. The determined professor of law and theology at the University of Wittenberg sought a debate with his colleagues on the faculty about the Roman Church's doctrine of indulgences. And so with a list of 95 proposals for debate in his hand, he prepared to post them in the typical manner on the door of the church. Now at that day, there was no intent in his mind to create a movement. He desired simply that the church should take steps to curb the abuses of the indulgence trade. That was his intention. But that moment became one of history's great hinges. It was a turning point. The transition from the medieval world to the modern world. The transition from life in bondage to life in liberty. Because in that scene we observe Luther before the church door. Luther before the church door. All Saints Day, which was November the 1st, was the day in the year reserved for all the saints who lacked a specific day in their honor. I don't want to see you in bondage, brother. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to take this off you and set you free. Can you use this mic here? Yeah. All right. All right. So you're out of bondage, brother, and I pray Amen. the Lord will give you liberty. Very good. So All Saints Day was November the 1st. So if there was a saint that did not have a specific day, on a calendar in the year, because every other day there was a day for the saint. If you were a saint that didn't have a specific day, then you and everybody else like that got lumped into that one day. That was All Saints Day. In Wittenberg, it was the day each year when the elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, directed that the castle church doors be opened to admit the faithful to venerate the impressive collection of supposed relics. In the collection, in which Frederick invested a lot of wealth, there was what the church certified was an actual thorn from the crown that pierced Christ's brow. Roland Bainton described other parts of the collection in this way. One tooth from St. Jerome, of St. Chrysostom, four pieces, of St. Bernard, six, and of St. Augustine, four. Of Our Lady, four hairs, three pieces of her cloak, four from her girdle, and seven from the veil sprinkled with the blood of Christ. The relics of Christ included one piece from his swaddling clothes, 
13 from his crib, one wisp of straw, one piece of the gold brought by the wise men, and three of the myrrh, one strand of Jesus' beard, one of the nails driven into his hands, one piece of bread eaten at the Last Supper, one piece of the stone on which Jesus stood to ascend into heaven, and one twig of Moses' burning bush. Now, there is a tendency for people who hear such a list now to smile, perhaps even to laugh out loud. But I assure you, for people in that time, it was not a laughing matter. They were taught that these things were true relics. And by 1520, those who visited the church on All Saints Day and made, this was the important part, the required cash contributions, could receive from the Pope indulgences either for themselves or for others, that would provide a reduction in the time in purgatory in the amount of 1,902,202 years and 270 days. They had it figured out to the very day. This was the amount of indulgences that you could receive. Now, Luther took a very dim view of that aspect of the indulgence trade. He had spoken against it. But what brought him to the church door on October 31st, 1517, All Hallows' Eve, if you kept saying it fast enough, it would become simply Hallows' Eve, Hallows' Eve, Halloween. Halloween. That's what it's called now. But what brought him there was the sale of plenary indulgences in the neighboring territory. From the aftermath of his visit to Rome in 1510, Martin Luther began a journey on which his superiors placed him, thinking they were going to do something to save him for the church, but unwittingly placing him on the path that led in a much different direction, a path that would mark the irretrievable rupture of all that the Roman church spent centuries to consolidate. The journey passed through four distinct phases that brought Martin Luther to the correct understanding of the words of our text this evening, particularly those words, the just shall live by faith. He had to find out what that meant. So I want you to consider with me those phases this evening, and they each begin with the letter D. The first phase, despair. Despair. Luther's journey to Rome in 1510 came in the middle of a serious spiritual crisis for the young monk. You see, unlike many of the other monks, Luther actually took seriously all that he was supposed to do in the monastery. 
There were other monks who said, Martin, you're, 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 you're too much. You're taking it too seriously. But he was a careful student of the methods by which medieval religion provided ways of escape from the dread of the afterlife. And if you had lived in that time, you would have been familiar with some images, woodcuts primarily from that period, that showed in very lurid fashion the prospects that awaited people on their deaths. And in some of those images, Christ himself appeared as an avenging, implacable judge who ordered that those who did not merit entrance into heaven should be banished, dragged away to hell. And only the interposition of the Blessed Virgin Mary, people were taught, could have any success in alleviating the wrath of her son. When Martin Luther returned from his trip to Rome, he felt the discouragement and the disappointment at having discovered that the epithet Holy Rome was a monstrous lie. There was nothing holy about it. He felt himself left very much alone, even in the midst of the other monks, in his quest to find the path to the forgiveness of sins, of his sins. At one point, John Staupitz, one of Luther's superiors in the Augustinian order, confronted him about the situation. And he asked Luther whether he believed in the forgiveness of sins. And Luther said, the fathers have taught it. Of course I believe it. Staupitz then asked whether Luther believed in the forgiveness of Martin Luther's sins. And there was the issue. Because throughout most of his life, Luther suffered wild swings in his mood. Sometimes being very positive and other times very gloomy. Not in the manner of those who today are diagnosed with manic depressive disorder, but times when he became very discouraged and depressed by his own failures as he sought to satisfy God. And even after his conversion to the truth of the gospel, Luther continued to have these battles. He often felt that he was unworthy to be in the presence of God. He would say, I am dust and ashes and full of sin. He did not know how he, as an unworthy sinner, could ever approach the God who is so high and so holy. Bainton refers to this idea as his terror of the holy. He was afraid of God. He wanted to approach God. He felt attracted to God. But at the same time, he felt repulsed by God because of his own unworthiness. 
And so Luther created a word to describe this situation for which there is no English equivalent. He called it unfectum, unfectum. And it's an expression that now is in English, like one that came out of World War II, for which also there is no equivalent in English. The word blitzkrieg. Unfectum, as Bainton explained it, and this is how Luther viewed it, may be a trial sent by God to test man, or an assault by the devil to destroy man. It is all the doubt, turmoil, pang, tremor, panic, despair, desolation, and desperation which invade the spirit of man. And that's a common affliction. No doubt there are people here who, at least at some time in their lives, have faced the same challenge. Luther felt something of the terror while he was celebrating Mass for the first time. He came to celebrate Mass and he came to the part where he was to elevate the host and to present Christ as a sacrifice afresh for sins. And the very thought that he was offering the body of Christ up to God filled him with terror. How could he appear in that place? And it was because Luther was trying to satisfy God by all the prescribed methods. In addition, he was a monk and was so diligent in his duties as a monk that he felt he was more serious than any of his brothers in the cloister. And there was the cause of the despair Because in spite of all he did, he sensed it was not enough and that it would never be enough and that he could never have assurance that God accepted him. So he confessed that far from loving God, as the commandments required, he hated him. He said that this was the ultimate blasphemy. He said, I didn't love God, I hated God. And ultimately the source of the despair lay in the reality of total depravity. Though Luther didn't realize it at the time. His guilt and his ongoing failures to measure up to God's demands were the cause of separation from God. If you turn back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Here was the problem. 
Luther knew, sensed that he was estranged from God and not all that he was doing could bridge that gap. And that is where every person is. From the moment that you are conceived in your mother's womb, that's where you are. You are separated from God, unable to bridge that gap. And so the question arises afresh every day. No one can be in the presence of the holy God unless that person is also holy. The Lord Jesus said the same. Accept your righteousness, exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So Luther set himself to be holy. This was what he was taught. Make yourself better. And so he would fast. Sometimes for three days in a row he would eat nothing. Later he said that he thought that a lot of his digestive problems that he had throughout his life and that no doubt contributed to his death were the result of the abuses he had put upon his body during this period. He fasted for three days in a row. But still the doubts arose. Have you fasted enough? Are you poor enough? Or as we might put it into our terms, into terms that we could understand, have you prayed enough? Have you felt sorry enough for your sins? Have you shed enough tears? Sometimes Luther lay practically unclothed on the stone floor of his unheated monastery cell, even in the dead of winter, in order to make himself holy. And at other times, he would beat himself mercilessly with the flagellum, the whip that hung on the wall in each cell in the monastery. Later, Luther wrote, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. And yet, it was to no avail. Despair. He found no remedy in himself. He found no remedy in the so-called superfluous merits of the saints. As far as Luther could tell, there was no way in which he could attain the status of being just with God. So you can imagine how discouraged he must have been. But suddenly... God intervened in his life. And here is how God always works. Through the wisdom of John Staupitz, 
one of his superiors in his order. And that brings us to the second phase, direction. He was in despair. He didn't know what to do. And Staupitz, in some way, was given the wisdom to know what it was that Luther needed. He received direction. Staupitz knew that the elector of Saxony, Duke Frederick, Prince Frederick, was organizing his new university at Wittenberg, and there were some teaching positions on the faculty that were open. And so Staupitz directed Luther to go to the university and to begin studying there for his doctor's degree. And in 1511, he went. He moved from Erfurt to Wittenberg, a little town that didn't even take up a whole mile from one end to the other. Luther later said of this move, against which he resisted, if it had not been for Dr. Staupitz, I should have sunk in hell. So never despise the intervention in your life of divine direction. He didn't want to go there. Why did he need to go there? He had been in Erfurt his whole life. Why did he need to go to Wittenberg? But as a good monk, he had no choice but to go. So he went there. And being the brilliant man that he was, it didn't take him long to complete his doctor's degree. I think he finished it in about a year. And then he was appointed to be lecturing in law and theology at the university. And before very long, he became the chairman of the Department of Bible. Now that seems something common to us today, but it was extremely rare in those times. And in addition, he became the parish priest for the congregation of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And that was the very place where on All Saints Day each year, people would go to venerate the relics. Yes, people to whom he would be responsible to guide them. So the idea was to keep Luther so busy he wouldn't have time to be depressed anymore. But privately, his struggles grew more intense. But Staupitz felt, and this showed his wisdom, that by studying the scriptures, Luther would learn some truths that had eluded him before. In 1513, Dr. Luther began lecturing on the Psalms. And I'll have more to say about that on the Lord's Day morning. In 1515, he began lecturing on Romans. And it was there that he came to the text that we have taken this evening, Romans 1 and 17, and the meaning of that statement, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now he knew, he thought he knew what that meant and he described his experience accordingly. He said, I greatly longed 
to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. And then he made the application. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. So the troubled monk reached the haven of rest. He came to see that it was nothing to do with the works of his own hands, nothing to do with fastings, prayers, beatings, Punishments, nothing to do with that. He came to understand that the righteousness of God was God's righteousness, imputed to him through grace alone. Later, Luther wrote a hymn that reflected the experience of his conversion. In devil's dungeon chained I lay, The pangs of death swept o'er me. My sin devoured me night and day in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife. I took no pleasure in my life 
and sin had made me crazy. Then was the father troubled sore to see me ever languish. The everlasting pity swore to save me from my anguish. He turned to me his father heart and chose himself a bitter part. His dearest did it cost him. Thus spoke the son, hold thou to me. From now on thou wilt make it. I gave my very life for thee, and for thee I will stake it. For I am thine, and thou art mine, and where I am our lives entwine. The old fiend cannot shake it. There is the hope for every descendant of Adam. God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So suddenly, Luther now saw everything clearly. And he knew that God was calling him to enter the battle for the truth. And that meant battling against the trade in indulgences. And it was that battle that led him eventually to the church door in Wittenberg. And so we come now to the third phase, denial. Denial. Meaning denial of the lie. There can be no doubt that the need to raise money for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was the immediate cause of the events that led Luther to the church door on October 31st, 1517. But nothing is as simple as it appears. Now, sadly, I don't have sufficient time to explain to you this evening, the whole theory of indulgences. The idea that some people, the so-called saints, by the way, I just read an article the other day that Pope Francis has bypassed some of the church's rules to declare Martin Luther now a saint of the Roman Catholic Church. I can't quite get it to work out how one who was excommunicated and therefore consigned to hellfire five centuries ago now can suddenly be taken out of hellfire and made into a saint to whom others can pray. But we'll leave that for another time. But the idea was that the saints had accumulated more merit than they needed so that they there was created a treasury, there was extra merit that the Pope could dispense to those who needed it. But such disbursements went only to those who made the required contribution. The papacy claimed that the power of the keys gave the occupants of the papal chair the ability to reach beyond this world 
to cancel penalties for sin for people who had already died. Now Luther would be the most vocal one to date in criticizing this whole idea. And the galvanizing moment came during 1517 when a Dominican monk whose name was John Tetzel came into the region near Wittenberg to preach an indulgence for the purpose of raising money to be sent away from Germany back to Rome to build St. Peter's Basilica. Using someone to beat a drum to announce his arrival in a particular place, Tetzel would set up a cross and would begin to make his appeal. And here is what he would say. Listen now. God and St. Peter call you. Consider the salvation of your souls and those of your loved ones departed. You priest, you noble, you merchant, you virgin, you matron, you youth, you old man, enter now into your church, which is the church of St. Peter. Visit the most holy cross erected before you and ever imploring you. Have you considered that you are lashed in a furious tempest amid the temptations and dangers of the world and that you do not know whether you can reach the haven not of your mortal body but of your immortal soul? Consider that all who are contrite and have confessed and made contribution will receive complete remission of all their sins. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends, beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, we bore you, nourished you, brought you up, left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel and hard that now you are not willing for so little to set us free. Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you are able to release them for as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Will you not then, for a quarter of a florin, receive these letters of indulgence through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul into the fatherland of paradise? Now, once again, when we hear those words today, we think, how in the world could people fall for this? But in that time, the whole atmosphere was much different. In that time, life was very short. And when people's relatives were gone, the church taught that they went to a place which is the same as hell, only it doesn't last as long. And so it was a very powerful appeal. Your mother and your father, they're calling out to you from the flames and you, for a little money, can release them. Now the elector Frederick, 
forbade Tetzel from coming into Saxony, where Wittenberg was, because Frederick didn't want any competition with his own indulgence trade on All Saints Day. But Luther's parishioners had only to cross the river Elbe and they could buy Tetzel's indulgences for themselves. And in a a rather famous incident, Luther was walking through the streets of Wittenberg and he encountered one of his parishioners whom he knew collapsed in his own filth in the gutter and Luther reproached him for being drunk. You are drunk! And the man said to him, It's all right, Dr. Luther. I have an indulgence signed by the Pope himself. And he handed the paper to Luther, who read it, tore it to pieces, and vowed that he was going to put a hole in Tetzel's drum. And that purpose is what led Luther to appear before the church door on the eve of All Saints' Day. And that brings us to the last of these phases, denunciation. Luther drafted a series of propositions or theses for debate by members of the university faculty. It happened that there were 95 of them. And this notice he posted to the door of the castle church. They were in Latin, as was the language of scholarship. They were not intended for a a wider public audience. But some people who were very enterprising businessmen realized that there was an opportunity here. If they could translate those statements into German, then using the printing presses, they could disseminate them across the countryside. And that is what happened literally within hours of them being posted. So... The internet had nothing over the people in that time. They were able to get the word out quickly. And at the heart of the theses was the idea that if the Pope had the ability to release people from suffering in purgatory, he should empty the place at once out of sheer love. To require the payment of money For an indulgence was the arrogance of those who were greedy for gain. But Luther struck at the very heart of the indulgence trade. In one of the theses he wrote, papal indulgences do not remove guilt. Beware of those who say that indulgences effect reconciliation with God. The power of the keys cannot make attrition into contrition. He who is contrite has plenary remission of guilt and penalty without indulgences. The Pope can remove only those penalties which he himself has imposed on earth, for Christ did not say, whatsoever I abound in heaven, you may loose on earth. And if we had the time, we could go through a number of the theses that really in that time were revolutionary. 
And those theses became a great bell of gospel truth that began to resound across the land. Neither Martin Luther nor any of those who showed sympathy with him could tell before that church door where those developments would lead them. For some, those developments would cost them their lives. But there Luther stood before the church door, and there began a small flame that eventually became a mighty conflagration that burned down the monstrosity that was medieval Romanism. Beyond that, Luther came back to texts like ours this evening to reassert the truth of apostolic times. He was accused of being an innovator. Oh, you're teaching new doctrine? Or as so many said to him, how can you be right, Brother Martin, and all these other eminent men through all the centuries before are wrong? Are you the only one that is right? But Luther was simply returning to the days of the apostles when he said the just shall live by faith alone. What he was emphasizing was here was the teaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that only by grace could you come to be justified and that it was only by faith that you could receive that justification. And he made it plain it was faith not in yourself, not in your works, but faith only in the merits of Christ alone. He was before the church door. Now tomorrow evening, as God gives grace, we're going to see Luther advancing a little from there, Luther before the hostile world. Then on the Lord's Day morning in the will of the Lord, we're going to look in particular at Luther's theology of the cross, a critical part of his thinking. And then... On the Lord's Day evening, God willing, Luther before heaven's gate, looking at his latter years and the circumstances of his death and burial so that we gain some appreciation for what God did through this man who became himself an emblem of gospel liberty and who did so much to rescue people from the bondage in which they had spent their lives. It's a message for us this evening to remember. It is still true. The just shall live by faith. May God bless his word to our hearts this evening. Let us all pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice again to know the reality 
of thy holy word, to know the power of that word in the lives of sinners. We thank thee that that word gripped Martin Luther's heart. For all his efforts, he had to come to the scriptures to find ultimately the truth. We thank thee for the spirit of God who revealed that truth to him. Father, we pray that thou wilt cause us to reflect on that truth tonight. Give us grace to be thankful for that which thou hast done. For we meet together because of that which thou hast done. And, O Lord, we pray that thou wilt grant us the grace we need for this evening and for the days ahead that we may be spokesmen for the gospel of which the apostle said he was not ashamed. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.